instead of the teleportation and replicator machines we were promised, tech disruptors have only managed to deliver new ways of getting minicabs and ways of invisibilizing labor. So why has capitalism stopped innovating? Why are my chances of being impregnated by Elon Musk low, but never as close to zero as I would like? With me to discuss all this and more is Paris Marks, author of The Road to Nowhere, and also host of the podcast Tech Won't Save Us. Hi, Paris. Uh, welcome to Downstream. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to chat I'm really you. sorry that this isn't taking place in the metaverse. <laughs> it would have been much better if we were avatars with no legs and, you know, looked really terrible. But unfortunately, they have to see the real us. To be fair, I don't think you can see our legs in this shot. So. <laughs> fair. We might not have legs. Your book, The Road to Nowhere, focuses on transportation. Why transportation in particular? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think for me, in part, it was because transportation was really a route into you know, having a more critical lens on the tech industry. Because um, I was interested in transportation. I was really into climate change. And, you Are know, you like a long-time train nerd? I probably wouldn't go that far. It, it would be difficult to be a train nerd being from a place with no trains. So <laughs> um, not exactly, but I but I like transit, you know, and, and I like means of getting around that are not uh, the automobile, right? Um, and so I think that was, that was really the way into it for me is seeing like what Uber was doing in cities, seeing the push for smart cities, you know, in the past decade or so, examining that and then looking through that lens to get a broader view on the tech industry and seeing all the other horrible things that they were doing. <laughs> so what are the horrible things that they're doing first in transport and then on yeah, a wider scale? Yeah, of course. So I think in transport, there's this narrative that in the past decade or so, there's been a lot of disruption, right? Companies like Uber, like Lyft, and and many others were disrupting the transportation system. This was the narrative that we were receiving. But really, when you look at it, what were they really changing? We're, we're still very reliant on cars, especially in North America. And many of these technologies were really oriented around maintaining the car, not getting us out of the car, right? They didn't change a whole lot about the fundamental way that we get around. And so I don't think there was a lot of disruption. The way that I see it is actually these technologies served as a way to delay a conversation or to distract from a conversation that we should have been having about the real means that we address the problems in the transportation system, which you know, requires taking on the dominance of cars, investing in other ways to get around, looking at the various other urban systems that um, cause the inequities and, and other problems in our cities. And instead, we had the tech industry step in and say, don't talk about those things because actually we have a ride hailing app or we're going to have self-driving vehicles or these other technologies that they came up with. They're going to solve all these problems you have from the people dying on the roads, the traffic that you're stuck in, so many other problems. And so you don't need to make these real fundamental changes because the technology will solve it. And now we can see over a decade of those narratives, the technology has not solved those problems. I mean, I was looking at how to get from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. And I was like, okay, there must be a train. It's in the same state. Why wouldn't there be? Not only was there no train, it took either five hours to drive or it took nine hours, I think. <laughs> like, So there wasn't a proper intercity train. There was like a nine hour slow train and yeah. there was like five hours to drive or you could fly. And I was like, this is why people call you the great Satan yeah. like, as, as, as a country. Yeah. So why looking at that map of you know, really fucked intercity travel in the United States. Have people gone, 
well, what if the cars just didn't have drivers? Because, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been on a train, you know, if you've come from North America, <laughs> but it's a bit like a driverless car a few in, times, in few that times. you can sort of sit there and not do anything and get really drunk. Yeah. Um, so, so why haven't, you know, people looked to already existing technologies as opposed to inventing one which doesn't actually solve the problem? Yeah. Well, I, I think part of it is that it's really... Um, compelling to get this narrative that, oh my God, there's all this innovation happening. There's all these new technologies that are going to solve these transportation problems. Um, why would we look at these old technologies of the past that we've left behind because we've adopted this automobile um, when instead we can have these like fancy things that Silicon Valley are coming up with and say are going to solve all these problems and be around in just a few years time, right? Um, you know, obviously, we can see the problems with those narratives now. Hopefully, I think many people can. Um, but if we if we actually want things that are going to solve those problems, we need to be investing in those alternatives. And like to take your point about the trains in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and and what have you in Canada, where I'm from, you know. I think it's like more than 60% of the population or something is between like one kind of corridor in Southern Ontario through to Quebec, you know, including Toronto and Ottawa and Montreal and Quebec City, all these major cities that people would know about, but also a lot of smaller cities as well. Um, and there's like a really bad train line that takes a long time on that route. And there's not even conversations about like adding high speed rail. Like if it would go anywhere in Canada, it would be on that route. <laughs> But we can't have that that discussion. We have to remain reliant on cars. Is there something that cars have done to our brains and our sense of self? They make us feel rich and maybe they make us feel autonomous in a way that trains don't? Yeah, I think in, in a way, right? Because the car... Uh, Andre Gores, who I quote in the book, really talks about how the car has this kind of bourgeois... Uh, individualist ideology associated with it, right? Um, it gives the driver the sense that they are in control. And certainly there have been these narratives around the freedom associated with the automobile for many decades, right? That were constructed by the auto industry and, and the various interests around it because it served their purposes and then promoted by the media so that people believed the automobile was an inherent form of freedom, right? You could get behind your car, you could go wherever you wanted, that was empowering. And certainly as those narratives were rolling out, as more people were buying cars, there was a concerted effort to disinvest from the other ways of getting around so that the only option for many people was to get around in a car, right? And so now when you look at the state of the transportation system, I don't blame a lot of people in North America and I'm sure parts of Europe as well for looking at the way that transportation is set up right now and saying, you're saying that I should be relying on transit or that I should be relying on trains. But when I look around, they don't work very well. And the only way that I can get around is with a car, right? And so it inherently makes sense to them to assume that the car is going to remain. And I think that's really part of the drive for electric vehicles and things like this right now, but also the openness to these transportation technologies that are associated with the car um, because there's a reluctance to believe that an alternative can exist, especially when our governments are so reluctant to make the investments in public infrastructure that would be necessary to realize those. Is there a city or a country you can think of which has gotten public transit right? I would say that, you know, I think you can pull examples from a lot of different countries, right? I don't think anyone has gotten it completely right. You know, maybe I'm forgetting an, an <laughs> example of a, of a, a utopia that exists somewhere on, on Earth. Um, but I think that we can look, you know, in, in North America, it's very common to look to Europe and say, 
look, we should be copying them, we should be doing what they're doing, right? And I think that to some degree, there are lessons that we can learn from the European experience. But I also think that we need to recognize that in North America, we have only over a century of building for the automobile. Um, and that means that the way that we address those problems is also going to look a little bit different because of the way that our cities are built right now. And I think that there are also lessons we can pull from China, where they're building out a lot of rail, expanding their um, transit systems. Latin America, where they've had to deal with, you know, uh, lack of budgets and things like that, but have still made some investments in transit infrastructure that might work in parts of North America to address these problems. Um, and so I don't think I would pull like a specific example to say, this is the transit utopia. Um, but I think that there are many different things that we can look to as examples. You know, we can look at the great um, transit system in London, um, even though it's expensive and has a lot of problems as well and could be improved in many ways, it's far better than anything that you're going to get in North America, right? Um, and so it, it's also about having that kind of recognition that there are places that are better, that, but there are still problems in those places. Well, you know, a lot of North American urbanists would ignore a lot of the problems that exist in European cities, whereas you know, you'd tell maybe a European how great their transit systems are, and they'd say, wait, but we have all these problems that we want to deal with because this is our norm, right? Whereas you're just there, like, at least you have trains. Exactly, yeah. Like at least you've got them. I mean, I maybe want to talk a little bit about the kind of body and citizen subject that different transportation systems are meant to serve. I fucking hate SUVs. <laughs> I hate them. I want them gone from the planet and I want them specifically gone from the neighborhood where I live because every time I get on a bike, I think I'm going to die. Um, and I've been waging a one woman war on SUVs for ages and something which has been said again and again is like, well, of course you don't need it. You're not a parent to any children and you're not disabled. You can get on a bike and active travel is very available to you. Um, getting on the tube isn't scary for you and so on and so forth. How many of those critiques do you think are fair and good faith and can be responded to? And how many are just reasons not to do stuff? Yeah, I think many are not in good faith, to be quite honest. Um, and, and you probably know this as well from doing the work that you've done opposing SUVs. Um, but I think a lot of these are excuses to not criticize or challenge the way that certain people get around right now, right? Um, especially when it's wealthier people who get around in these ways, and they certainly don't want to have those, uh, those means of getting around taken away from them. In Canada, one of the arguments we hear is that we can't get rid of SUVs or big trucks because we have winter um, and we have a lot of snow. Unlike right? other countries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and we need to get around in, in all the snow. And then like you see videos of like, kids in, in Finland, like riding bikes to school in, in the winter, right? And it's like, I don't know if, if that's really the reason why we need to have these SUVs around, especially when you think that just a couple of decades ago, they were really uncommon, right? It was not common to have these huge vehicles on streets and people still managed to get around in the winter somehow. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I really don't take a lot of these arguments at face value because I don't think that they're actually drawing attention to significant problems that exist or reasons why we need to maintain um, SUVs and, and still have those around and within the transportation system. I would say that I think that there are real reasons to look at the transportation system or even proposals for a better transportation system and ensure that they are equitable. You know, there are people who would draw attention to some of these proposals that are made about focusing more on cycling, having more transit and saying like, how are people with disabilities going to get around in this kind of a system? And I think that that needs to be kind of front and center in considering how that's going to work instead of leaving these people behind. Because I don't think that, you know, 
as much as you could say that automobility works for these people, it allows them to get around, I don't think it actually works very well for them. Um, and I think that we can imagine a much better way of organizing our cities um, that is both equitable and doesn't have these massive cars everywhere. I mean, your podcast is called Tech Won't Save Us, and I also really love it. Thank you. <laughs> Why won't it save us? Um, you know, I think that we want to believe that technology is going to solve our problems, right? That we can just rely on the continual development of technology and that's going to solve these various problems that exist, right? And I think that it's associated in particular, like, you know, maybe this has been around for a while, but in Silicon Valley, you can see it really clearly where there's a desire to present technology as the solution to the problems in opposition to politics or actually like dealing with the political system, right? So they would rather us ignore um, the government. They would want a small government that does nothing um, and instead put our faith in the technology companies and the work that they do to solve the various problems that we have in our society, right? Um, and as we were saying with transportation, I don't think that we can simply rely on technology to solve these things. If we only have the technology, but we don't have the politics to, you know, go along with that technology, we're not actually going to get the improvements and the benefits. If you look at a company like Uber, for example, when they launched, there was a whole kind of utopian promise associated with ride hailing. They were going to reduce um, congestion on the roads. They were going to reduce car ownership because you'd just be able to hail a vehicle and wouldn't have to you know, own your own vehicle. Um, it was going to be more fuel efficient, more, more, you know, it was going to be better for the environment. And then on top of that, it was also going to serve underserved communities. It was going to be complementary toward the transit system. And then, you know, a number of years on from that, when independent researchers were finally able to dig into the data on Uber and Uber was trying really hard to ensure they didn't get that data, they found that actually it was worse for the environment. It took riders away from transit. It did very little to change car ownership rates. Um, made traffic worse, not better. Um, and it mainly served people who were on above average incomes in cities who were rather young. You know, your typical tech worker was the people who were benefiting from these services. And I think you can see that time and time again with so many of these technologies that come out of Silicon Valley because they are based on, or, or the idea for many of these companies comes from the challenges that tech workers face in their everyday lives that they're responding to and they're trying to find a solution toward. And then they act as though, or they use you know, their, their marketing teams to pretend as though these solutions are going to solve a whole load of problems for everyone else, when that's really not the case. But that's what's necessary to sell it to the broader public. I mean, is that why we don't have the same level of technological innovation that it seems that previous generations had. Because you think about the leap from penicillin to the car, to space travel, to the internet and cellular communications, to now the big disruptor is a better minicab company. Do you think <laughs> that capitalism has stopped innovating? It's hard to say for sure. I would say there's at least been like a qualitative change in the innovation that has happened, right? Um, and this is something that David Graeber has written about that many other people have written about where there was kind of this shift in the priorities of public funding for technology, the kind of technologies that they wanted to fund shifted, you know, more toward computers, digital technologies, things like this, and to some degree, health technologies. Um, you know, that was around the 70s or the 80s, I believe, when those kind of shifts happened. Um, and so there is this kind of belief that innovation has slowed down. You know, Peter Thiel is someone who would say that, uh, you know, we 
I can't remember his exact quote, but he kind of says that like now we just have like 140 characters, Twitter, things like this, right? There's not that real innovation as you're saying. Um, and so I don't think I'd have like a, a clear answer as to whether or not that's happening. But I would say that often these tech companies in the private sector are what are associated with innovation, right? They are the ones who are driving things forward. I don't think that's actually true. I think that when we see these actual technologies that have real effects on society, they come from public funding and from the direction of the government in how it allocates that funding, right? Um, and certainly we see that through the 20th century. And even a lot of these big tech products, they're things that have been developed publicly and then were kind of spun off as private companies. Um, and so I think that we need to kind of keep that central in how we think about technology and what technologies are you know, having real impacts on the world that we live in and where these, those technologies come from. The other point I would make on that is that just because the technology is publicly funded doesn't mean it's always a positive thing, right? Um, a lot of the funding for those technologies came from the military, came from the Air Force, uh, and they had particular goals with the types of technologies that they wanted to fund and see in the world. And so those were not always technologies that were oriented toward the public good. Um, and oftentimes they were still focused on having a degree of control over society um, and disempowering workers and ensuring that they didn't have the power to still control these workplaces in these various sectors of society. The government as well as the capitalists were interested in seeing that eroded. And so I think that we need to kind of keep that in our minds when we think about the technologies that are being pushed as well. Some other ghost of Karl Marx is like, I fucking told you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fucking told you. I mean, how much of what we think of as recent uh, advances in technology, particularly the platforms like Deliveroo or Uber, are really just about making labor in Visible. It's like a core thread of all of the technologies that we see, right? Particularly since the 2008 financial crisis and what has come after that, that's really when we have this emergence of the gig economy. And in part, that's propelled by, you know, the rollout of the iPhone is around 2008, I believe, uh, celebrating its 15th anniversary this year. Um, so maybe it was 2007. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been like, yeah. oh, fuck math. Do a quick math, yeah. Um, and then just before that, of course, is the growth of cloud computing. So you don't need to have your own servers to, you know, innovate, start a tech company or whatever. You can just rent some server space from one of these companies like Amazon Web Services and then, you know, go for it, right? And so we see Uber come out of that. Many of these other gig economy companies emerge in this period. They're not only taking advantage of these new kind of technological developments that they can build on, but they're also taking advantage of the precarious labor that existed after the 2008 financial crisis, right? Um, but I think when we look more clearly, we can see that a lot of this innovation or a lot of what is being um, promoted by these major tech companies is means through which to disempower labor, um, to invisibilize labor so that it looks like you are, um, you know, dealing with an AI system or some sort of technology when actually behind that system is a worker that is really essential to that process and that it wouldn't work without. And the example I give of this, Phil Jones wrote a great book earlier this year, um, you know, a lot of the AI that is supposedly exists out in the world is reliant on these micro workers that are paid pennies in order to, you know, classify all this data in order to do tasks and things like that. But they are completely hidden from the picture. What a really 
big one for that is content moderation. So you think, oh, there is this sort of automated system and I'll, you know, click report and there'll be some kind of AI looking through it. And then it's just somebody in the Philippines going through intensely traumatizing content all day, being paid nothing to do it. Yeah. And Time has uh, had a great investigation earlier this year into one of those in Africa. Um, You know, the really poor wages, I believe it was in Kenya that they were paying, um, how they were pushing back on the workers who were trying to organize demand better, um, how they particularly targeted one worker who was trying to draw attention to these problems at at the site. And of course, these would be people who are being paid, you know, so little compared to what we get paid here in, or, you know, even content moderators mm. in, in North America wouldn't be paid very much, right? Um, but it, it's a real divide that exists. And it's a real kind of labor force that we ignore. And this exists with so many of these different companies, right? Whether we're looking at Facebook and its content moderation, whether we're looking at Amazon and the warehouse workers and the delivery drivers who many people don't think of when they make those orders on amazon.com and then they arrive in two days or, or whatever, right? Um, and So there are many different ways that this plays out throughout the economy. And we're seeing even, you know, companies trying to push this further and further. In Canada, there's a fast food company right now that is pioneering or or trying to push this notion that they're going to get rid of the cashiers so that they don't need to pay wages in the global north. And instead, they're replacing them with video screens with workers in Latin America who are taking those orders instead. And it it's just wild that like, in Canada so far, like the, the labor boards have not stepped in to do anything about it. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like at least when, you know, you'd had something like NAFTA and there's easier movement across borders for goods and for labor, you had to let the people live there. Yeah. But this time you're like, no, no, you <laughs> don't even have to live here. Yeah. And it, it's like a really dystopian future. There's there's this uh, 2008 science fiction film called Sleep Dealer. Um, and, and I got to speak to the director uh, last year. And basically, it presents this future where there's a hard border between the United States and Mexico. Um, and the workers in Mexico kind of go into these factories and do this labor by controlling robots in North America. And like, I saw that and it, sure, it's not exactly it, but I was like, we're, we're just moving like closer and closer mm. to this future every day. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking a lot recently about how we deal with climate change and the role of technology. And I suppose if I was an executive at Tesla, I'd be saying, well, look, you can have your socialist utopia when everybody's on bikes, but yeah. <laughs> people don't want that. They want cars. And we're trying to find a way to make cars greener. So you know, fetch all you want, but at least we're doing it. And I wonder if there's a little bit of a mirroring of that with some of the stuff around a Green New Deal, because the idea is you have all of the state investment and sure it's socialized, but your life doesn't have to change that much in terms of consumption and standard of living. Are we using technology as a way to deny an un- in- you know, inconvenient fact that our standard of living has to fall in the global north in order to deal with the climate crisis? Yeah, it's a it's a big question. <laughs> and uh, it's certainly, I think, a lively debate at the moment. Um, I certainly don't like the, the phrasing that the standard of living would have to fall. Maybe I would rather put it as, uh, and, and some people are much more comfortable saying that. Maybe I would put it more as the the way that we live would change. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, of course, that's a lovely yeah. euphemism. But I mean, basically, even if you are somebody who is on the breadline in the United States, or Canada, or the UK, 
you have a standard of living which is being propped up by the exploitation of labor, land, and resource in the global south. Absolutely. No, it's completely true, right? And and that's one of the problem with electric cars is they continue that um, those kind of neo-colonial relationships that exist by ensuring that we have this massive increase in in mining in order to you know still allow us all to drive big SUVs with batteries in them, right? I don't think it's like a negative conversation, right? I think often it gets framed that way as though like we're going to have this massive decline in living standards in order to address climate change. But I really don't see it that way. Like I really think that if we think about the way that society is set up right now, I think that if we actually like talk to people about what they like about this society and what they hate about this society. I think that there's a lot of things that we consider core to the society, like the kind of unending consumerism that is expected of us in order to keep the economy growing, that for a lot of people really doesn't like provide them fulfillment. Um, and it feels like you're just kind of on uh, a hamster wheel of, of constant consumption, right? And I think that those sorts of things can be changed um, without like really altering standard of living or people's perceptions that, um, you know, they're going to be worse off as a result. I think that there are ways that we can imagine a different way of organizing society in the global north where, you know, most people's lives actually get better as a result um, because we're taking away those things that, you know, are really unfulfilling, that are pushed on us by capitalism in order to sustain the system. And that, aren't actually inherently like good or positive or or interesting to people and rather allow people to work less, have more leisure time, change the way that the transportation system works certainly so that, you know, it's not so energy intensive, so that it's not so focused on automobiles. Um, and then, you know, the other piece of that is of course that the global South can't be kept where it is right now, right? They need to be brought up to our living standards as well. And that really needs to be central to it. You know, if we think about, if we think that we're on a world with limited resources, you know, um, and we need to adequately distribute those, um, the focus really should be on bringing the global North and, and improving, or sorry, improving living standards in the global South, um, as opposed to continued consumption here in the global North. I guess maybe just to push on this a bit. Sure. Is... People don't always want the things we want them to want. And Absolutely. I'll give you a, a concrete example. There's this uh, marketplace near where I live, which is a uh, market run by and for the Latin American community. And there's been a big redevelopment, brouhaha. And as a way of getting the you know neighborhood on board and saying, hey, like this shouldn't be redeveloped in this way. We should protect this wonderful community asset. People going door knocking and being like, so what would you like to see here if not luxury flats? And loads of people said, I want to wear the spoons and Eclairs accessories to be yeah. like, fuck's sake. <laughs> and so is there a tension between the democratic impulse, wanting to bring everyone along with you and for them to recognize that this is a vision of the future, which has got their real interests at heart and also getting the thing done on a timescale. Because you talked about China and high-speed rail. There is a obstacle which isn't there, which is democracy. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, and I think it's a completely fair point, right? And there is a lot of discussion on the left. And certainly I talk about it in my book, right? How these processes need to be more democratic, but also that inherent contradiction is there, right? And I certainly don't have the answer to how we get around it. And I think that it's one that we need to be thinking more about in the future. Um, certainly, I think Aaron Bananov's work on planning and how the, this might work in the future is really compelling to me. Um, but yeah, I, 
I would say I don't have like a, a clear answer to the question. It's one that I identify exists as well. <laughs> like this, this tension between the democratic impulse, but then also what, you know, what decades, a century of conditioning has led people to desire in their lives. Um, and how do we change that and reorient that? I think that there are moments when those things happen, right? When people see the kind of society that we live in, the ways that things aren't working for them, you know, like at the moment where gas prices and energy prices are going through the roof, what does this mean for people? Um, and certainly that doesn't mean that people should be living in energy poverty or have no heat or anything like that. But I think that it, it it's moments like this that allow kind of a, a rethinking of how things work. Um, but is it being seized in kind of an effective way? No, certainly not, right? It, it's being seized to ensure that companies can make profits and while people, you know, go hungry and, and have no heat in their homes. So yeah, it's, it's certainly a challenge. <laughs> I mean, shifting a little bit um, onto the personalities of Silicon Valley. <laughs> sure. Um, Elon Musk is more obsessed with semen than the average Navy <laughs> admiral. I guess so, yeah. Jack Dorsey looks more and more like Rasputin every day. Why are these people so weird? Jeez, that's a that's a good question. <laughs> um, it's it's really been fascinating to see how some of these incredibly powerful people have evolved the things that they believe and just the things that they get obsessed by. Um, like Jack Dorsey, you know, certainly he kind of follows in Steve Jobs' footsteps in some ways in, you know, going on these retreats, these Buddhist retreats over in Asia and, and things like this. But he's really taken it to a level that even Steve Jobs wasn't at when he wasn't bathing and, and whatnot, right? Um, and Elon Musk, like, I, I think when we look at his kind of obsessions with population rates and birth rates. Um, part of that, I think, is really associated with maybe not like um, maybe not like a clear desire to continue to have um, growth into the future, but I think that this is kind of attached to part of his concerns, right? That if the population declines, that's bad for him and his future because he inherently believes that not only do we need to colonize Mars and other planets, but that the population needs to continue growing in order for human society to thrive. We see um, Jeff Bezos saying this when he says that we have a choice between staying on Earth, where we're going to have rationing and stasis, or going into space and having a trillion people, where we're going to have dynamism and growth, right? And so I feel like this is really core to a lot of their thinking, and it attaches to this idea that I think is gaining more attention right now of long-termism, right? This, this notion that we should be really concerned about what is going to exist for the human population in a million or millions of years from now um, and kind of considering the people who would live then in as having like the same moral value as people who exist today. And personally, I think it's like a completely ridiculous notion. Um, but I think this is part of what's driving them. But in in a clearer sense, I think it's part of what justifies what they already want to do, right? And so they'll use these notions like population rates or whatever to distract us and, and to get us really concerned about things that aren't really a big concern when we should be thinking about climate change and things that are really existential. I mean, the population is growing though. It's yeah. just either flatlining or aging in the global north. Why don't they just go... Well, there's loads of people in Africa and Asia. <laughs> Is it just that they're the wrong color? Um, I, that might be part of it. Um, <laughs> I, I also think, 
you know, one thing that you see when you look at these these writings of people who are much more into this space of thinking about population and about what the population is going to be in the future, that they do ascribe value to populations and populations in the global north are worth more than populations in the global south because they're considered to be able to contribute more to society because of the way that the world system is set up. Um, like it's a really kind of messed up worldview. But, you know, I think you could also look at Elon Musk as someone who is from apartheid South Africa. And, you <laughs> what know, was it? I think Azalea that's Banks called him apartheid Clyde. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a good nickname, you know. I mean, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> it, it's it's also odd. Like when you look at a lot of these people, because Elon Musk comes from the PayPal mafia, right? A really influential group of people who were at PayPal back in the day who have gone on to be really influential in um, Silicon Valley. Peter Thiel was one of those as well. A lot of these people have connections to South Africa or from South Africa themselves. And so you wonder what kind of ideas they then bring into all of these companies that they're starting and, and you know, the kind of thought leadership that they provide. Or what kind of people can govern themselves and what kind of people can't. So it's not just that they have these origins in apartheid South Africa, but what they then made of democracy in South Africa. Exactly. And, you know, there are people who are inherently anti-democratic. Peter Thiel is very open about that fact. Um, Elon Musk, I think less so, but you can certainly see it in the things that he says, right? He's increasingly moved towards supporting the Republican Party in the United States. You know, as he started talking about population rates, he started to engage in this kind of discussion around wokeness and that things are too woke. When he's talked about population in the past, he said that what we need is more smart people to be having children. So who does he consider to be smart people? Uh, it's also what's smart about immolating your whole life yeah, with a yeah. sticky, squalling bag of needs. Yeah. Sorry. No, thank you. <laughs> like, like that looks awful. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry about it. I'll pass. I mean, do you think that you can explain why he made this pitch towards buying Twitter and now he's trying to scramble out of it like a cat out of a bathtub? Yeah, that's... Um... That one's a difficult one, I would say. I, you know, I think that he is obsessed with Twitter in an unhealthy way, um, in a way that would be unhealthy for anyone, but he's obviously very powerful and influential. And one thing about Twitter is it does, you know, sustain his profile, right? He can tweet and that will cause headlines across the media worldwide, right? Um, and it can just be utter bullshit. And media organizations will still pick up on it and act like it's something that needs to be reported and given attention to. Um, and so a lot of his influence, especially in recent years, has come from the following that he has on Twitter and his ability to wield that platform in a way to not only you know sustain his kind of personal brand, but also pump his companies like Tesla, cryptocurrencies. Um, and I don't know if maybe he perceived a threat to that the ability for that to continue. Um, and he felt a desire to get control of that platform then so that he could, you know, ensure that that benefit to him doesn't go away in the future. Um, I think if he does actually take control of it, it would be terrible for the platform and even for him. Um, but it's hard to say exactly where that's going to go right now. And we'll find out a bit more next month. I mean, I guess I kind of think that an addict should never become their own dealer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, that Absolutely. doesn't seem good. Um, just moving on a bit, there was this piece in The Guardian, which I found really fascinating. And it was about this person who 
kind of tries to model what the future might be like and what responses to it might be like. And then they got flown out to the middle of the desert by all these billionaires who are like, okay, we want your help prepping for the event. Yeah. Some kind of like cataclysm that they imagine. And, you know, they want to burrow underground in these bunkers. They had questions like, how do I maintain security when the world has ended outside um do you think that there is how do i keep control of my security workers yeah when when... they don't have a family to feed with the paycheck i'm giving them because they're obviously outside of the bunker (laughs) Uh, do you think that this represents a kind of gnawing anxiety amongst the billionaire and the oligarch class that they're making the world worse and they're going to be stuck on this planet but they also don't want to stop making the world worse yeah, it, it's certainly a tension that's in there, right? And and the piece that you're talking about is from Douglas Rushkoff's new book, Survival of the Richest, which I'm really looking forward to. It's based on an article he wrote um, a few years ago that was that was really good in digging into these things. But I think that we can see that in, you know, we've had these this interest by people in Silicon Valley in these kind of doomsday scenarios, um, apocalypse bunkers, things like that for a while, right? Both building them within California or other parts of the United States or buying citizenships elsewhere in the world, like New Zealand, um, in order to have places to flee in case, you know, the people pick up their pitchforks and, and start coming for them, right? I mean, well, Jacinda Ardern is like, I will tax the fuck out of you. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I don't, I don't know. Exactly. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Yeah. I, I think sometimes New Zealand gets uh, progressive credit doesn't always deserve. I, and I love New Zealand. Oh, no, Listen. no, no. Go, yeah. go for it. Go for it. I want your like Jacinda Ardern, you know, dub send. Like, well, I, I think if you talk to people on the on the Kiwi left, they would have some things to say about Jacinda Ardern. If I don't have them here, I've got you here. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, someone like Peter Thiel, and certainly that was under, you know, the previous um, National Party government under John Key, um, you know, he basically bought that citizenship, right? Um, and a lot of other tech companies have been able to, or, or tech people have been able to buy their way in pretty easily. Certainly it was under that administration. Um, but, you know, the Ardern government was also um, courting Amazon in order to go uh, film their Lord of the Rings series down there. Um they didn't fully repeal the Hobbit law, which removed a lot of workers' rights for film workers. Wait, um, there's a Hobbit law? Yeah. So <laughs> when they went to film The Hobbit in New Zealand, um, Warner Brothers you know, wanted a really favorable deal. And when they were approaching, I guess, like the finalization of this deal or, or the commencement of the series, um, a lot of the film workers started to protest because... Uh, local film workers were not given the same kind of um, rights and and benefits as other workers. So they demonstrated. uh, And then the government brought in a law which was dubbed the Hobbit Law in order to ensure that, you know, they had many fewer rights to organize and and demand things on these productions. They were basically turned them into like freelance workers. Um, And and some of those things were tweaked when the Ardern government came in, but it wasn't fully removed. Um, And they were also really interested in, in, you know, getting Amazon's business, not just to get them to um, film the series in New Zealand, but also to try to get them to do other things with other tech companies. And, you know, this is common for governments around the world. I don't want to just like shit on New Zealand because I I think New Zealand's a great country. There's something so dystopian about a piece of anti-worker legislation being known as the Hobbit law. Yeah. It's like if during like Victorian times, there was a law that was brought in. It was like, oh yes, that's the Scrooge law. Yeah. And you'd be like, stop taking like cutesy names from fiction. Like this is horrible. Yeah. Um. Oh God. Well, there goes my hot take about New Zealand. <laughs> but, you know, 
to, to get back to the point, right? You know, Peter Thiel was able to buy the, the house there so he could get away. And many other tech people have done the same in, in New Zealand. But I also think that when you look at the futures and, and kind of the, the endeavors that a lot of these people are heading toward, they are, even, even if they promote them as, you know, benefiting everyone and, and being for the broader society, even a lot of the kind of companies and ideas that they're pushing would have this inherent effect of benefiting them if some sort of, you know, dystopian event were to happen, if people were to rise up and, and finally try to challenge these tech billionaires and other, other wealthy people in society. Like if we look at you know, I would argue that Elon Musk's future and kind of the vision of addressing climate change that he puts forward in his companies is really beneficial to someone like him and really allows wealthy people to opt out of society um, in the sense that, you know, they can have these gated communities where they're powered by renewable energy with battery storage. They can have their cyber trucks that have, um, you know, bullet proof windows and and dent proof uh, armor around the sides of them that they can drive around in you know he imagines the boring company as these tunnels under the roads we know that not many people would actually be able to use these if they were ever realized i don't think they will be but you know they're really exclusive roads for rich people not for the broader public and then you know they already have their um, private air terminals with their private jets they already have a lot of other exclusive means of getting around within cities and and they live kind of in a separate part of the city from other people um and so i think that there's a real they, they're already kind of inherently building a society where they are separate from everyone else. And a lot of these companies that are positioned as benefiting everyone just further um, move us more in that direction. I was thinking about this project in Saudi Arabia, I think it is, of the line, which yeah. is this, you know, horizontal line city, which is like very dense and then it's piled up like this and then it's all air conditioned inside and powered by renewables and you know everyone's got you know <laughs> wi-fi children or whatever and again it sort of speaks to these themes of the invisibilization of labor because in order to run a entirely luxury city that will take armies of the exploited nepalese and bangladeshi workers that you know really do power the gulf states um but also they can't live there and so I, I wonder, is this something which will remain a kind of rich person's fantasy because they don't think about, okay, how are we going to shuttle the labor in and out and where will they live and how is this going to work? Or have we gone so far down the road of dystopia that that's actually realistic? The line is an interesting example, but it's still like a concept, right? We can actually see in many countries, these sorts of projects have already been started, right, have already been kicked off smart city projects that a lot of countries in the global south have used to try to attract foreign investment capital. So what's a smart city, just for our views? So, you know, a city that has a bunch of technology where where it's imagined that technology will serve a whole load of functions so that, you know, the city will be seamless and you won't need to rely so much on these workers. In many cases, the workers are just hidden away by the technology, right? And we saw this in Google's proposals for a smart city in Toronto as well, um, where it wasn't that there were no workers, you know, doing the maintenance on the city, but they were hidden away by the technologies that they wanted to roll out. Um, and so when we look at these cities like the line, you know, the line doesn't exist, but there are other proposals and, and other kind of examples of these cities that have already been started, that are in the process of being built, that that have been built. Um, in many cases, they are unaffordable to the people who actually live in those countries and are rather for the wealthy in the countries or for foreign people who would, who would buy real estate in them. Um, and they are really exclusionary, right? Um, and not only that, but 
the desire to plan the city and these kind of visions that, you know, it's going to be very pedestrian oriented, you know, there's going to be a lot of street life. What actually ends up playing out is that they're often like really dead and empty and, you know, they don't have that vibrancy because they're just planned and, and the people who are planning them don't understand how a city works and how you create these kind of these moments, this community. Um, so the, they're really kind of terrible. They're not going to result in the in the benefits that we assume. Um, but, you know, they're really good for attracting real estate capital and things like that. So was Web 3.0 always doomed to descend into ugly monkeys, like ugly cartoon monkeys? Or was there a moment where it could have had some possibilities and then it just got gobbled up by capital and accumulation? It's a tough question. I want to say that it was always doomed to go this way. You know, that's my bias, right? Um, maybe there was a moment where it could have took off and, and become something greater. But I, I really think that the whole Web3 moment really depended on, you know, a particular kind of economic policy, what was going on in the in the pandemic, where you had all this money that was being spent that was going into the economy, you had these really low interest rates, you had the quantitative easing and things that were going on. There was there was a ton of money that needed to find somewhere to go. And so it was really beneficial for these people at these tech companies at these venture capital firms in order to make some really risky bets. Um, but where they could get some really quick returns, right? Because in many cases, for these companies, they invest in, or, or for these venture capitalists, they invest in these companies and then they need to wait until they IPO several years down the line, right? Maybe even a decade. Um, in the case of these kind of crypto tokens and things like that, they could put their money into them really quickly and then withdraw them. Um, you know, they were basically unregulated securities, right, in many of these products. Um, and so they were able to make a lot of kind of speculative investments really quickly. In some cases, they made a lot of money off them. In other cases, they lost. Um, but I think it does show an issue in the tech economy right now where they need to find new means of growth, right? Um Certainly, they had the advertising-fueled growth with Google, Facebook, and certainly that is still growing. Amazon's getting in on it more. Apple is getting in on it more, trying to get more money from advertising. There's the subscription revenue side. Um, there are, obviously, e-commerce websites that's from the early days of the internet, something like Amazon. But there's a need to find something else, right? It needs to go somewhere next. Um, and one thing that the internet has always kind of lacked is this kind of unified payment system. Um, and so cryptocurrency was trying to deliver that so that they could control that system, make a lot of money from it by getting fees. Um, and certainly you can see some ideas in cryptocurrency that you used to see PayPal advocate before it, you know, became more professional, started, uh, um, following financial regulations and things like that, right? After its initial period where it lost a ton of money in order to, to get customers. But what you see with the Web3 and Metaverse as well, which is still a push that's that's happening even as kind of the Web3 and crypto stuff is starting to fade as their market caps have, have fallen off a cliff, um, is this desire to push the sale of virtual goods in a much 
greater way than exists right now, right? So sure, you can go play a video game or you can go into Fortnite and, and buy some skins or some weapons or, or whatever, right? Uh, and you're going to make some money off of that. But there's a real desire to have us spend more time in front of a screen, more time online, more time in these virtual worlds so that we'll buy more virtual goods to furnish our homes, furnish our avatars, you know, a whole load of other things, right? This is the vision that someone like Mark Zuckerberg has because this kind of virtual commerce could be very lucrative. You know, you can develop a digital object and then you can sell it an infinite number of times, right? So there's a high profit potential there. But isn't there also a symbiotic relationship in terms of the growth of virtual products um, with the decline of real life spending power. So I can furnish my metaverse apartment because the real one I have is total shit. Um, or I can't buy a house, but I can buy this, this, and this. And it taps into our need for escape and the way in which fantasy provides comfort when our real life circumstances suck. Absolutely. And I think that there's also a disconnect, right? Someone like Mark Zuckerberg he has the money to buy a bunch of Hawaiian islands and then to furnish a digital Hawaiian home as well that looks like his own. You know, if you're if you're thinking about average people right now who are trying who are struggling to pay their rent, pay their energy bills, you know, furnish themselves, clothe themselves, feed themselves, who has the money to now build out a whole digital identity on top of that as well? Um, and so I think that these pushes for the metaverse certainly don't recognize that challenge that exists in society because it's being pushed by people who don't have those same, you know, those same concerns, uh, you know, they're wealthy beyond imagination. Um, but on top of that, it really shows that they're running out of means for growth. And for Facebook in particular, there's a desire to control the platform, right? One of the things that Mark Zuckerberg talks about a lot is that he's worried that because Apple largely, and certainly Google to a certain degree as well, but to control the platform through which many people access Facebook, that that has limited them. And certainly Apple brought in some changes to its uh, kind of privacy policies last year that had a huge hit on Facebook's profit potential, right? It took, a, I think, $10 billion off of their profits um, just because of this one change. And so Zuckerberg has talked a lot about the need to control the platform. And the metaverse seems like you know, an effort to do that. And he certainly presents it as though we will be the more kind of benevolent platform holder if you just trust us to control the future of the metaverse. Um, you know, we'll ensure that it works for creators and that they can capture a lot of their income from the sales that they make. Um, but really, it's about trying to build a new business where they have control, where they can extract a lot of new profit, um, especially as scrutiny has increased on Facebook itself and their main business. I mean, a lot of working class men lost money in the crypto crash. Yep. And is there an element of, you know, crypto also represented a way to make money when that doesn't exist in the legitimate real world economy? And also, if your job is bullshit anyway, and you don't really know where the money comes from, is it that crazy to be like, well, if I just do this, and it's a symbolic token, which is going up in money, if I cash out at the right time, I'll be really, really rich. Like it kind of makes sense. Totally. It's like the kind of normalization and, and continued growth of gambling, right? Um, that has already been pushed in many ways. There's an expansion of sports betting and things like that in society, particularly in North America, I'm sure here as well, um, where 
you know, the idea is that you bet more, that you try to, you know, game the odds a bit more in order to make money because social mobility and the actual means to get ahead in life have gone off a cliff as, you know, prices have soared, wages have been stagnant and things like that, right? So you can completely understand how people look at it and they say, okay, I see a lot of other people who are having their crypto tokens go through the roof and then they're able to sell them at a profit or they buy this NFT and then they can resell it for, I don't know, $100,000 or a few million dollars or something like that. This might be my way out to get a cash in really quickly. But then on the flip side of that are a lot of people who lost wild amounts of money um, in the crypto market. It, Sometimes because they didn't understand exactly what was going on, but in many cases because they were misled by the people who were running these companies, launching these tokens. There were, you know, rug pulls where you would buy into these tokens with the promise that it was going to be something. And then the creators cashed out their early tokens. And so you lost all your money. Um, and then on top of that, there is the, um, there's just like the general kind of Ponzi nature of this economy, right? Where it was kind of based on the notion that a lot of people would buy in and you needed people to keep buying in until, or to keep it sustained essentially, right? And then when we saw the prices of these crypto tokens like Bitcoin go off the cliff starting in November and really bottoming out, well, they, they continue to fall, but really, you know, a few months ago, um, what you saw was a lot of companies going under, a lot of these tokens just completely collapsing. And that meant that people who had invested in them, hoping that they would have these real returns that would actually allow them to build some wealth for the first time in their lives, lost everything, lost their homes, um, contemplated suicide, if not actually did so. Um, and you know the harm has just been immense for something that was promised to be so liberatory. And I think this is another reason why we need to be so skeptical of the claims that are made by many of these tech companies, because ultimately they're in it for the profit, even if they might dress it up in a narrative around, you know, the future and, and how these things are going to be so beneficial to us. Um, but really they're concerned about making money at the end of the day, and they don't care if they need to lie to you in order to do that. I think it seems like a wise note to end on that very sound advice. So, <laughs> Paris Marks, thank you so much for joining us today on Downstream. Thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Cool. Hi, I'm Rivka Brown, commissioning editor and reporter for Navarra Media. Thanks to our listeners, readers and viewers. We're so happy to announce that Navarra Media now has the backing of over 10,000 monthly supporters. We couldn't produce a single second of our podcast without this regular support. It's amazing to know that so many of you are as determined as we are to defy the mainstream media and take independent journalism to the next level. We can't wait to show you all we've got planned. Thank you.